My name is Josh. If this is your first time here, welcome. Um, this is a bit of a strange, interesting week for us. It's, uh, it's Labor Day, and as you can see, our church really embraces Labor Day, <laughs> which means a lot of us are out of town having a great time. Uh, but this is what we expected. I told... Uh, Memorial Day. I'm sorry. What? Wow. <laughs> Yikes. I'd like to thank all of our veterans <laughs> really fast. Oh boy, would you play something real happy? <laughs> all right, cool. Oh boy, that almost cost me my job. Then we're talking about politics, so that'll, that'll do well too. Um, well, hey, we have breakfast burritos for you guys. We wanted to intentionally kind of create a hang time for us um, to celebrate this morning. What we really take seriously as a church is celebration. We're going to be talking about that all throughout the summer. In fact, we're at like the tail end of our conversation series, which is kind of crazy. It's like breeze by. Um, but we started like a couple weeks ago and we did a panel. And what we've been doing is like every other week you'll come in here and there'll be a couch right here and a moderator. And so we've done a panel on stages of faith. So we had like a longtime believer with a longtime skeptic and they both had a conversation about Jesus and the church and where they're both at. Um, it was moderated. And then uh, the next week we had um, a great conversation on the future of the church and we brought together a bunch of different denominations and denominational leaders and had this conversation about like, hey, is this even like relevant anymore? Do we need these spaces? Because statistically church is going down. So like, why is this place still relevant? Why do we need it? And we unpacked that a lot. Um, and then every other week I've been uh, just sort of unpacking what we do during the panel. And then finally, last week, uh, which I was you know, fingers crossed, nervous, out of my mind about, we talked about politics. <laughs> so uh, this morning, I'm going to be unpacking kind of what we did uh, last week, and then I'm going to try and keep this as short as possible because I want us to embrace what's going to happen over there. I truly believe that the greatest picture of following Jesus Christ uh, is being in community together and remembering uh, all that Christ did. So we're going to do that with communion, and then uh, in the same way, we'll do that with breakfast burritos. So... Um, Oh, good news. If you guys are warm, uh, we have one lone fan, so that's definitely going to cut it. <laughs> uh, but before we get started, let me pray for us as we uh, dive in to the story this morning. Lord, I am um, I'm so grateful uh, for this space. I'm so grateful for weekends like this where uh, we get to connect with people. And, and honestly, that's why we have these. They really leave space in our calendar and in our lives to either connect with family or connect with friends, uh, but be in community with one another. And so I pray that this church, this space right now would be an extension of that and that we would have a blast um, just getting to know each other better. Amen. Um, cool. So uh, this week, as we had um, a panel about politics, my small group that meets on Tuesday nights actually had most of the panel on it that was in my small group. <laughs> so we spent some time uh, like walking through and talking about what happened. If you're in my small group, you guys were my prep this week, so you're going to be hearing a lot of the same messages. <laughs> uh, but David, who was on the panel and kind of uh, leaned more conservative. So to, to re recap, if you weren't here, we had three individuals on the panel. It was Whitney, it was David, and it was Tess. And then Stephen uh, was moderating it. And so Tess was sort of on the more left side of things, the more liberal, democratic side of things. Then we had David, who was on the more right side of things, so the more like conservative, uh, Republican side of things. And then we had Whitney, who was honestly kind of right in the middle and was very fluid and was kind of like, you know, going back and forth. And I thought it was a really cool representation of where our church is at in terms of our political spectrum and our beliefs and our core values. Uh, but the whole conversation was based around how to have a conversation 
about politics. So rather than debate and figure out who's actually right and go after really hot topic issues uh, that would swiftly remove me from my position in my job, <laughs> they were very good about talking about just conversations. How do we actually talk about having a conversation about politics? Rather than like just debating back and forth and screaming at each other, how do we actually have like a really good conversation? And I thought that was the coolest thing. You could feel this logo over the crowd and this calm in the room when Stephen basically just said like, hey guys, just so you know, we are not here to have a debate whatsoever. We're actually here just to talk. And when he disarmed that situation, it, this interesting thing happened in the room where we all kind of paid attention and looked in and zeroed in and went, oh, wait, like, this could actually be something. We could actually learn something from this rather than watching people fight, which is what you can do anytime you turn on the news or turn on the TV, right? We actually came into this space and we saw people actually talk and share their hearts. Like, here's why I feel this way. And here's why I feel this way when you say these things. And so it was this really, really interesting conversation uh, between the three of them, and Stephen did an excellent job moderating. But David, who leaned a little more conservative this week, uh, we, we talked about the Great Commission in our small groups. So we were going through, Great Commission is a, um, a term for the very last chunk of all of the Gospels. So there's four books in the Bible that are called the Gospels. They're the stories of Jesus, right? Jesus' life. And at the end of each of them, Jesus gives this like, basic call this like paramount call to all of his disciples and everyone who's gathered there at this mountain to see him. There's, this is, if you suspend all your disbelief for a second and fully believe something for one minute, there's this Jesus who's been resurrected from the dead and he's standing in front of you on a mountain going like, here's what I want you to do, right? This is freaky. This is like, this guy rose from the dead. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Everything that you've learned from me, all of this stuff that I've given you, this way to live your life, this peace that you've found, this good news for all people, this grace, this forgiveness, I want you to go out to all the world and I want you to share this message. I want you to go out into all the world. And to us right now, that doesn't seem so crazy, especially if you've spent any time in church. You're probably like, oh yeah, yeah, go out into all the world, yeah, share Jesus with people. That seems pretty normal. But it's actually the most scandalous message Jesus ever could have left out on it. And it, the proof is in the pudding because in each one of these passages, at the end of Matthew especially, he's going, okay guys, so go out into all the world and like, this is going to be great and you're going to push this message even further to the corners of the globe and all of these people that are gathered, some are like, yeah, we're going to do that and some are just like, eh, not for me. I don't want to do that. And the reason is, is that he's gathered there uh, in a very Jewish perspective. So we need to remember the context that we're in. When Jesus comes to this mountain, that would have been very symbolic for a Jewish person at this time in history. And the reason is, is because Moses was also on a mountain. So this mountain has this like kind of symbolism of like, we're going to receive instruction from this place. and It's going to take us into something new. But when Moses comes, he goes up the mountain, talks with God, comes back down, and he comes back with all of these instructions, all of these laws. These are the boundaries and the borders that I'm setting up for you, God said, and they're for my people. Right? So these Jewish people are used to hearing this message going like, this is all for you. Right? This message that I have, these are your rules to live by, these are your boundaries and borders that I want you to stay within, and they're going to be helpful for you, but they're all just for you. These are for my people. And that's what they were used to hearing, and they're like, right on, this is for us, this is our nation, this is the way that we're supposed to go, and we're the chosen people, and God is going to make an example out of all, for us, out of us, for all nations, to see how a nation actually follows God, to see how a nation can follow this great divine thing, and to do it, they set up all these boundaries, and these borders, and these rules for the Jewish people. Now what Jesus does on this mountain, in the very same way, 
is he goes like, it's no longer just for you. I want you to take this all over. And that's really easy to look at, and a lot of times we do in church, and there's nothing wrong with this, but it's really easy to look at and go like, I need to hop on a plane to the closest third world country, and I need to start telling people about Jesus. Or I need to go to the worst cities in the world, and I need to tell these, these people who are living in a different way about Jesus. And that's true, and that's all well and good, but in a city that's as culturally diverse as Los Angeles, Jesus might have even just said, I want you to walk outside. I want you to take your front door, open it up, and have conversations with your neighbors, the people who are around you. See, in Jesus' day, you would have had to walk a very, very long while to encounter someone who is from a different culture that you were from. Because this is a tribal sort of scenario, right? So you'd have to actually walk and walk and walk days and days and days and journey into a foreign land to actually encounter foreigners, to encounter people that didn't act like you, speak like you, and believe what you believed in. Now, for us, Jesus' message could literally just be like, I actually just want you to, like, talk to Roger downstairs, <laughs> right? And for us, that's, like, really, really, like, the, no, 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 no. The noble and the, the great thing is to hop on the plane or the boat or whatever it is and go to this far-off land and, and spend weeks at a time building shelters. All of that's amazing. But the hard work, the true, like, crazy work of the gospel is just encountering the people who are around you day to day because you can always go on a plane somewhere and then come back. Never encounter those people again. But these are the people that you actually have to do life with on a daily basis. And if you can share this good news, this gospel stuff, with the people that are actually around, you actually have to reckon with them on a daily basis, and it kind of holds you accountable. It kind of holds you to something. Uh, So Jesus says this on his mountain, and he says, go outside, walk outside. This is not just for you anymore. This good news is for all people uh, to see. And I think in our political conversations, we really need to jump on this idea, right? This good news, not like, not like bad news or, or drama-filled news or we're going to fight for hours because I'm right, you're wrong news. No, this is just good news. Good news is really interesting because when you share it, there's no, like, there's no hope, there's no like, desire, there's no motive behind it. Good news is just too good to hold in, right? If I find out something really, really great, that's, what, that's why Twitter thrives, that's why Facebook thrives, that's why Instagram thrives, that's why Snapchat thrives. Everything thrives in our world because when we experience something awesome or good or just out of the norm and crazy, our natural inclination is to share that with as many people as we possibly can, right? And I find it fascinating that we're so quick to do that with material things, like, oh, I just got a new car, let me snap that bad boy, I just got this new shirt, I just got this new thing, I just got this new promotion. So easy to share. So simple, we don't even think twice. But when it comes to actual good, good news, and this good news of the gospel, it's a little more difficult because it's kind of a weird conversation. And I think that goes the same way with our political views. I think the most vulnerable thing that these people did on this panel last week was just kind of own where they're at in front of a bunch of people. Because that's, that's intimidating, right? I actually wouldn't want to stand up here and tell you where I'm at politically. It's really uncomfortable because then you, like, your cards are out on the table, like here I am, right? And I think a lot of the time, the politics and the way that we deal with that and then our Christian lives and the way that we follow Jesus and share that are actually eerily similar. It's strange the way that they both work together in the way that it's hard and difficult to get into these conversations, for, run the risk of maybe looking like a weirdo or run the risk of maybe like saying the wrong thing or to run the risk of like potentially losing a relationship. All of these are the things that go through our heads as we're having both political conversations and 
spiritual conversations. So this morning, I really want to unpack and disarm our conversation model, and especially about politics, and especially about our faith. And to do so, I'm going to talk about um, a tower. Let's see what we got here. A tower, uh, Mr. Rogers, which is going to be really fun, and then uh, Safa and Darba. And those aren't human beings. That's two Hebrew words that we're going to unpack together. Um, so I'll start out with a story. Someone actually called me out uh, a couple weeks ago. It was a friend. I don't know if you guys often, I think the position, or the, the, the job that I have kind of lends itself to people just constantly calling me out. <laughs> so I'm very used to it. But uh, this, this individual, this person, gave me a sort of a scathing message halfway through the week. And I was like, Ugh! And basically the message read, like, you're wrong. Here's why. Here's how you need to fix it. Blah, blah, blah. And I found myself, and you've probably been in this position before, uh, it's an emotion that I can only refer to. Uh, it's exactly like seeing my father in a bank moment. Anybody been with their dad to the bank where all of a sudden something just slips inside of him and rage like outpours? Like, what? Well, I don't know this guy, but like, what are you doing? You know, or you're on hold or something like that. That's the kind of rage that welled up within me. And it's like, where is this coming from? And I can't push it down. And I don't understand why I'm so angry and why I'm getting so defensive. All right, I got this text, and they were right. The hard truth of it was that they were absolutely correct. What I had done was actually very wrong, and I didn't know it, but that's part of the reason that I got so defensive is because I was completely ignorant to the situation, and yet I was wrong, but at the same time, I was like, no, 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 I'm going to defend this to the death. Right? And this is that moment where you're kind of typing out every single text message. You're going like, no, I don't send that. <laughs> click, click, no, I don't send that. And back and forth. And I kept coming up with these different scenarios where I could trap this person in something they had done wrong. All of a sudden, now I'm, I'm like shifting it to like, well, well, they do this all the time, so maybe I should call them out on that so they'll forget about this, and then we can really have it out, right? Those are the conversations. But after a while, I began to realize, like, wait, no, hold on. They are actually right. I'm the idiot in this scenario, and they're correct. And I'm going to have to actually like bend to what they're saying and go like, yeah, you know what, you're right. But here's the only place that I was correct in this story, because honestly, I was, I was the wrong party all the way through, all the way through the drafts of text messages, all the way through the, the thoughts that were in my head and the rage that was pouring out from me. I was wrong. However, I realized really what it came down to is if this person had like pulled me aside and said, hey, I want to I wanna grab coffee this week. I'm not going to tell you why, but I just want to let you know like, I've, I've noticed something, and I, just, I would love to be able to have this conversation with you one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and I would be open to that. I'd be scared to death. <laughs> like, can, can I get a little bit of what we're going to be talking about? But I'd be open to it. I'd go, okay. And then if there was this humble sort of stance that, that we could take, where, where that individual could have gone like, hey, I know you probably don't realize this, but when you do this, here's what happens. When you do this, here's what happens. And I, again, I know like this may be totally out of left field for you, but, but here's the way. I think as Californians, we are especially good at this kind of stuff. If you've been in LA long, we love, I'm almost an artist at just dancing around the point, right? <laughs> it's like, like the nuance in the language that we use is hardly ever blunt and to the point. And when it is blunt and to the point, a lot of times that can be hurtful. That can be damaging in a way that like you don't need it to be damaging. Your point is already right, but when we come at someone with I have all the answers and you don't, then damage can happen. And that's why we take this stance as a church. It just says we're a church for people who don't have it all figured out because neither do we. That's a very humble stance to take, but I believe it's the right one. Because if good news filters in and out of something, we actually have to have the space within us to let that change us, to let that change our mind. And we can only do that if we're keeping this humble stance. That goes the same for when we're sharing this stuff. If we come in hot 
with our politics or our faith, and we say, hey, no, 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 you're wrong, and here's why, the gloves are going to come on. All of a sudden, it's a debate. All of a sudden, this is a fight. How did we get here? But if we can honestly have a conversation and disarm the scenario, just like Stephen did with all three of them, and go like, hey, actually, guys, this is not going to be a debate. I think he did a really good job, too. Anything kind of like fired up and it looked like there was going to be some like kind of back and forth he would kind of like say remind guys look this is just we're just having this great conversation like how do we have a conversation about a conversation it was just really well done and I think if we share our faith in a way like that it's really 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 going to be powerful this blunt language all comes down to something that you are all probably familiar with how many of you have an email account arms up hands up Participation, you're all awake, that's good. Uh, you have an email account? How many of you text message regularly? Yes, that's kind of the go-to communication at this point in our history, right, it's texting. Um, how many of you have ever texted the single word K to someone? And if you have, please stand up, we're going to berate you. All of you? Oh, you're awful human beings. <laughs> so that's the thing, all right, everything comes down to this. If nothing else, leave with this and we can just have breakfast burritos. Never ever text the single letter K to another individual. You wanna know why? As soon as you send that, maybe the best intention thing, you might be talking about all happies and rainbows. As soon as that K comes through, you're like, are they mad at me? <laughs> right? As soon as that K happens, it's like, they might wanna murder me right now, right? That short snippet of conversation, unless you have a shorthand with someone where you're like, hey, listen, I'm gonna be sending this stuff, like just pre-warn you, like this is gonna happen. But if you ever get that like one word text message, you're like, Ser seriously, not even an emoji? You couldn't, you couldn't throw me a smiley face on the back of that? All of this, <laughs> these political arguments, our faith arguments, we're in such a polarizing time. And a lot of that is because, and we've shared this, that's part of the reason that we've tried to go ex on all technology when we do these panels and we go to like, literally our songs are on sheets like this, is because our, our true belief is that in all of this, it's really hard to compromise over a keyboard. It's really hard to compromise over a screen because the nuance and the communication in that can be read in so many different freaking ways. If you send a text message like, hey, there's about a thousand different ways that that could be read, right? And it's different than that face-to-face -face interaction where if you just said, okay, you would know, right? You would know what they meant, you'd know their heart because you're sitting there face-to-face. -face. So let's talk about communication a little bit, and to do that, we're gonna go to a really old story in the Bible um, called Babel. Uh, really fun note right off the bat, Babel, anybody heard the Tower of Babel story? If you haven't, if you did, like, this was a story I learned as a kid in Sunday school, and as I was studying through it today, I was like, what on earth? what they teach kids about. It's kind of like, it, it's a whole story about completely unrooting and, and like scattering an entire generation and scattering an entire civilization. And then when we learn it in Sunday school, a lot of times the Sunday school teacher at the end will go like, and that's why we have different languages. <laughs> you're like, no, this is a dark, weird story. Uh, so I wanna unpack it a little bit, give it a little bit of context um, so that this makes a little bit more sense. But I think it has a lot to do with our political conversations and also our faith. Uh, so let's go to the scripture here. Let me tapping along as we go. Uh, please work. This is why we go X on technology. Okay, it says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And I want you to hold on to these two words. I want you to hold on to one language, so language, and a common speech. That seems kind of redundant right off the bat, right? Language and a common speech. So we're going to come back to that. Two, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Oh, please, God. There we go. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. 
Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. So I want you to understand something right off the bat. First, we have bricks, right? We're sort of watching the rise of technology. First, we have bricks. Hey, let's figure out how to make bricks, right? Then we've made the bricks. Hey, let's make a city. Then they're starting to build a city. And then it goes to, hey, let's build a tower. So otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city. That's very interesting. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Oh, it hates me. All right, let's switch to uh, no technology. Um, scattered, but the Lord came down. Did, did it do it? Okay. City and the tower where the people are building. The Lord said, uh, as if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. This is where things get very confusing. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, remember that word language, so that they will not understand each other's speech. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over uh, the, the face of the whole earth. So again, we're taught this as a child, and it's sort of like, oh, this is why we have different languages. But if you actually look at the the linguistic principles behind this, there's just simply no way that one event in history spread out all of these languages, right? So if it's not about your language, because this is like the whole world, and it's interesting, at the very first verse it says, now the whole world, right? The whole world. To give us some context, this is uh, chapter 11. In chapter 9, it's Noah and the Flood. Right? This is a very famous Bible story. We did it over the summer when we were talking about our stories. Noah is this righteous man, and so God says, hey, I'm going to save you and your family from this impending flood that's happening. I want you to build this ark. And so he builds this ark, and then the whole world, or Noah's world, right, the whole thing that they have encountered, everyone else around them besides this family is wiped out, and this family is saved by God. And that sounds crazy and cruel, but you need to understand within a biblical perspective in this ancient culture, this is a story of outright salvation and crazy love. Because if you believed in a God at this point in history, God said a couple things. First of all, they were behind rain, right? If you prayed to a God for rain, your crops would grow. Therefore, that was a blessing. But if you have a flood, all of a sudden from the same source comes this massive destructive property. All of a sudden, I'm very scared of this God. Right? And this would happen all over the place. Any natural disaster, God must be angry with us. What have we done? We need to sacrifice something. We need to atone for what we've done. God must be furious with us. What have we done? But in this story, God says, no, 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 it's not about that. Look, I'm going to save you. I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to save you. And at the end of the story, in a hugely progressive move for any sort of God at this time in history, he sends a rainbow at the end to say, like, this will never happen Again, I promise you, I will never let this happen again. So there is a God that we're seeing, this is the very first book of the Bible, who is outrageously loving, who is for us. And he says, no, 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 everything you think about this God property just isn't right. I'm telling you, I'm a loving God, and I'm going to protect you, and this is my promise to you. This rainbow is my promise. I'm, I'm going to fulfill that, and this is never going to happen again. Now we fast forward two chapters, right? The chapter in between this is called a genealogy. There's a long, long list of names, uh, including the one who started Babel, um, and his name is Nimrod. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, so Nimrod starts Babel, two incredible names in the Bible. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we've come from Noah. So we have this family. 
This family lineage, this all comes from one tribe, one family. So the whole world really would be this whole tribe. This whole area spoke one language and was of one common speech. Now let's get to the redundancy in that because the Bible, anytime you see repetition, you should go like, what the heck is going on here? Why would the writer repeat himself? And a lot of that comes from its poetic nature. So we sometimes forget that the authors of the Bible would flip between poetry and literalism like on, just on the flip of a coin. Just back and forth, like poetic, now it's literal, now it's poetic, now it's literal. It's really hard to keep track of. Um, so we have one language, and that language, that word that's in the Hebrew, is really, really interesting. That, that is called uh, shapa, or safa, I'm sorry, safa. So safa is this word that means language, and it can mean language, but actually it means shore, it means crestline. And more importantly, where it's used more times than anything else in the Hebrew language is the word for border. So language means border, literally. We're about to get political, can you sense it? <laughs> so language means border. Had, so the whole world had one border. And then the word for speech is this other awesome word called debar. And speech means word, uh, or debar means word, speech, language. It means sort of the more common tongue. So it would be actually physically speaking. So Debar is to physically speak. So they're of one border, one boundary, one border, and they're of one speech. There's one common mission, right? And that border and boundaries is going to be something to hold on to for us as we continue to unpack this. Remember, borders and boundaries. They're of one border. So Nimrod, <laughs> Nimrod, uh, decides that he's going to build this huge tower, right? He's, he's the leader of this group. And the crazy thing is if you actually do some research into Nimrod, Nimrod was actually, uh, he was believed to be a giant. So in the same way that Goliath, when we see the David and Goliath story, there's this big burly giant. Nimrod would have been kind of the same thing, and he was known as a very violent person, a very violent leader. So Nimrod is the leader of this Babylonian society, which will become Babylon. And he's this violent leader before God. And so at first, he says, let's build a city. And we don't see anything wrong with that in the biblical perspective. God isn't like, no, 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 don't build the city, right? So he said, first, let's build a city. And then once they've built this city, in the center of it, Nimrod goes, now let's build a tower. And that doesn't mean so much to us right now, but again, if we look back into the context of this, the tower is actually a really arrogant move. Anytime you see a tower in the Bible, it's a symbol for arrogance. So Nimrod wants to build this tower, and the reason is, the belief was if we can get high enough up in the air and into the sky, we will be like God because that's where God lives. God is up there. In, in our current world, we've been up to space and we understand that like the sky, there's just more beyond it. But for Nimrod, in his view, he was like, if we can get up that far, and this is the ancient tradition, we can scrape the sky with a dagger and rain will fall. So why would you pray to God for rain, for provision, right? So he's taking on that responsibility, saying we're going to provide for ourselves now. Even more than that, when we get up to the top, right, if you're that high up, what are you? You're safe from what? What's the primary narrative in this civilization right now? The story that's just come from this, a flood. So not only do we have, I can scrape the sky and provide rain for us, but if God decides to send that flood again, we're going to be safe and I'm going to protect us because we're going to have this huge tower. So all of a sudden, we don't need God's protection. We don't need God's provision. And even more than that, this is a slap in the face because it's basically saying to God, we also don't need your promises. That whole rainbow thing, that whole thing that you said, like, you promised never to do this. We have no interest in following your promises. We're going to make our own way in the world. So God, in his own tricky and hilarious way, because this is like a satire all the way through, God normally, in any sort of story like this, God would meet them on the top of the tower. 
right? They built this huge tower, so obviously they would meet God there, and then God would do whatever he's going to do, levy whatever punishment or whatever blessing he's going to give on the top of this majestic Nimrod tower. <laughs> Instead, the scripture says he came down. So he's on the bottom level with the people. When the rabbis used to talk about this story, they said the city wasn't the problem. The people were the problem. The problem was that this tower was so special and important to them that if a person was lying dead in the streets, they would walk past. But if a single brick fell from the tower, they would cry, woe is me, how will I ever get a brick up there again? This is what God is seeing. He's seeing you guys are way too focused on your mission and you are not focused enough on the people who are around you. You're not focused enough on your neighbors. And so he comes down, and I want this to be really, really important. It can look like he's just scattering everyone and saying, like, you're over there, you're over there, you're over there, and now you can't, ha-ha, losers, you know, scatter all over the world. But in verse 7, he repeats what verse 1 says. He says, let us go down there, and there we will disrupt their language and their speech. That language, that same word, safa, over again. We will disrupt their safa and their debar basically means, let's mess up their borders, their boundaries, and their speech. Let's call them out from where they think they need to be, all focused on this one tower, on this national mission. Let's call them back to being people that have to deal with each other. And the most important thing in that, and the most important takeaway for the church, is that that includes diversity. So when God comes in and comes down and tries to disrupt this tower, he doesn't even mess with the physical tower. He messes with our idea of how we all need to be the same thing all the time. As if to say, like, no, guys, that's not the point. The point is not for you all to be on one mission. That's beautiful. That's awesome. I saw the city thing. That was great. But now you're just way too focused. You're way too focused on this tower. You're not focused on each other. And so when God comes down amongst us, which is always the case, in Jesus is the case, he comes down and he walks amongst us and he includes and infuses our world with diversity. He says, you guys are all going to be separate tribes now. I'm going to disrupt your borders. You're all going to have your own borders and your boundaries and you're also going to have your own languages and your own speech. And you're going to have to learn to do this again. And in the next chapter, he finds this guy named Abram who later becomes Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. But not because you're going to have a tower or a city or anything like that. I'm going to make you a great nation because this whole point is that you're going to be a nation that exemplifies what it means to actually follow me. You're going to be an example to all of these other scattered nations of what I desire. And if we look at the story of Israel, it is always about going to those who are oppressed, who are needy, and living with them. So God desires for the differences, the quirkiness, the little diverse parts of all of us. He wants all of that. I think there's this sneaky narrative um, where a lot of us live our lives on this like horizontal plane, on this flat surface, right? So go with me a little bit here. Uh, if you don't believe we don't live on a flat surface, humanity itself believes that we were floating on a pancake in space for many, many years. So there's still this sort of idea, though, that we're on this flat horizontal plane. There's this sneaky underlying narrative to all of our lives, right, that we need to kind of conquer all that we can around us. In the same way that Nimrod wanted this tower and to conquer everything so that they would not be scattered. We don't need to leave. We just need to be our one thing and we don't have to worry about anyone else. What we do in our own lives, and it's sneaky, it doesn't seem bad at first, right? 
The whole first half of life is about like accumulating all that we possibly can, right? I need to get the right education so I can get the right job, so that I can get the right home, so I can get the right car. It sneaks up in the pictures that we want to share with each other. If you look at our social media feeds, often we're not taking pictures of our like dirty laundry or our dirty bedrooms or our dishes or something like that. No, they're like perfectly crafted because this is the stuff I want to share with everyone. It creeps up in small ways, in ways that we don't really understand it, but in ways that like we ourselves just kind of want to conquer what's around us on the surface, on the shallow level. And that's one way to live. And it, in all honesty, all of the things that I just said are not bad things. Right? They're good that you should try and strive for the best life possible. You should strive for security. You should strive for these things. But that's one way to live. And then there's this other way to live. So if we have a horizontal, then we need a vertical. Right? And the vertical is also this beautiful way to live. Right? I would say in the vertical, there's love for God. There's your prayer life. There's your spirituality. There's this idea that there's something more than just this. And it's coming this way. And it's vertical. And it's looking up much like that tower in Babel, right? Like this is supposed to be a good idea. We're going to become God-like. And then the danger in that scenario is that we might just become a little too pretentious as Christians, right? We're building our own vertical tower, and we're like, God's going to meet me up here, and because I'm just focused on this and not on this, I'm going to be better than this. When really, the beautiful reality of the Christian life is that that tower crashes in to our horizontal plane. As if to scatter, just like God says in this story, and to go through all, all nations, just picture that spiritual tower, that love for God, that love for everything, spilling over into the horizontal, and that is where you find the kingdom. That is Jesus stepping down into human history to literally be a part of what's going on on the horizontal plane. And that's what we're called into. The most interesting thing about horizontal meeting the vertical is that that's where we get the word horizon. So if you're staring off into the distance and it begins to drop off, your eyes can only see that far because we are, in fact, on a round planet, right? And so if we look at the way that God wants to get rid of that safa, those boundaries, those borders, as he does on that mountain where he says, out into all the world, get out there. And that includes us realizing that our boundaries and borders are the vertical and the horizontal crashing together in a beautiful collision that looks like this. As soon as we look at the horizon, that's always where the border is, and guess what? We're always chasing it. We're never standing on the edge going, I can't go any further. No, we're constantly moving towards that beautiful horizon. The horizon is where light changes, where the sun rises, where the sun sets, where gorgeous, gorgeous things happen. And if we are chasing that gorgeous reality, I truly believe we're chasing the kingdom. But that looks like stepping out of our boundaries, our own safas, and chasing that beautiful horizon. Because when we do that, we have these crashing moments. It opens us up to actually having meaning conver meaningful conversations with people. No longer are we just talking about the horizontal, the shallow. And no longer are we in the clouds, heady. All of a sudden, we're dealing with the reality that the kingdom is among us right here and right now, and that God might actually want to do something with us right here, right now. That's exciting. That's so exciting. It opens us up to amazing conversations. It puts us in the here and now. I'm going to end with this story. This is where we get to Mr. Rogers, who's one of my favorite human beings. Um, my aunt actually worked as a page on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and she was the, uh, the person that got to put out his shoes every day. And she would have all of these incredible stories about this man. And she was like, you don't understand. He is exactly 
like he is in the show in real life. And what's even more powerful, and I didn't know this uh, until just recently, a little bit ago, he's actually a Presbyterian minister. So the way that Mr. Rogers lived his life, won't you be my neighbor? When you start unpacking all this stuff, you're like, holy goodness, he creeped in my head, that genius. <laughs> Let me read this story. Uh, we suffered a massive, massive tragedy this week. Um, what happened in Manchester, it, you know, it's these moments like these where you truly are like, God, what, where are you? What's going on? How am I supposed to believe in a loving God when these crazy, violent disruptions happen? I think that's the message of the cross, and we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. But uh, I think that the most important thing is, is I see God in, in this. And so this is a quote from from Mr. Rogers, and it's probably hard to read, but I'll read it. It says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And so as I was on, um, uh, online just kind of looking up uh, the Manchester stuff, just getting informed, and I was just like blown away, and I couldn't, and then I came across this picture. And the crazy thing is this picture started going viral. I saw it like everywhere. Everywhere online had this picture in this moment of major, major tragedy. People were looking for someone like this to give them some good news, a breath of fresh air. Uh, and as a result, um, this guy I follow decided to um, share this story. He's a writer uh, for movies and TV and film. But he decided to tell the story about when he actually encountered Mr. Rogers. So this is what we'll end with this morning. Um, I'll just read this for you. Uh, it's also, so it coincided with the 50-year anniversary of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as well. So in the same week that we had the Manchester tragedy, this is also Mr. Rogers' 50th anniversary of being on television. Uh, it starts out the, like this, and he tweeted all this, so it's all sort of pasted together. It says, 50 years. I have a story to tell about this man. A lot of people are sharing this quote after the heartbreak in Manchester. And it's also the 50th anniversary of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Fred Rogers was from Pittsburgh, my hometown, my generation grew up loving this man who taught us to be kind above all. Fred Rogers was the real thing. That gentle soul, it was no act. As I got older, I lost touch with the show, which kept running through 2001. But in college, one day I rediscovered it. I was having a hard time and the future seemed dark and I was struggling, lonely, dealing with a lot of broken pieces and just not adjusting well. I went to Pitt and devoted everything I had to the school paper hoping that would propel me into um, some kind of worthwhile future. It was easy to feel hopeless. One span was especially bad. Walking out of the dorm, I heard familiar music. Won't you be my neighbor? The TV was playing in an empty common room. Mr. Rogers uh, was there asking me what I do with the mad I feel. I had lots to spare, still do. It feels silly to say, it felt silly then, but as I stood mesmerized, the show felt like a cool hand on a hot head. I left feeling better. Days later, I get in, in the elevator at the paper to ride down to the lobby. The door is open. Mr. Rogers is standing there, for real. I can't believe it. I get in and he nods at me. I nod back. I think he could sense my geek coming out, but I kept it together, almost. The door is open. He lets me go out first. I go, but I turn around. Mr. Rogers. I don't mean to bother you, I just want to say thanks. He smiles, but this probably happens to him every 10 feet. And he said, did you grow up as one of my neighbors? I felt like crying. Yeah, I was. 
He opens his arms, lifting his satchel for a hug. It's good to see you again, neighbor. I got to hug Mr. Rogers, y'all. <laughs> I pull it together. We're, we're walking out, and I mention liking Johnny Costa. He was the piano player on the show. We made more small talk. As he went out the door, I said, in kind of a rambling gush, that I'd stumbled on the show again recently when I really needed it. So I just said, thanks for that. Mr. Rogers nodded, he paused, he undid his scarf, he motioned to the window and sat down on the ledge. This is what set Mr. Rogers apart. No one else would have done this. He goes, do you want to tell me what's upsetting you? So I told him. I sat and I told him that my grandfather had just died. He was one of the few good things I had. I left adrift, broken hearted. I like to think I didn't go on and on, but pretty sure he was, pretty soon he was telling me about his grandfather and a boat the old man had bought him as a kid. Mr. Rogers asked how long ago Pap had died. It was a couple months. His grandfather had been obviously gone for decades. He still wished the old man was here, wished he still had the boat. You'll never stop missing the people you love, Mr. Rogers said. The grandfather gave Mr. Rogers the rowboat as a reward for something. I forget what, grades or graduation, something important. He didn't have either now, but he had the work ethic, that knowledge that the old man encouraged him with this gift. Those things never go away, Mr. Rogers said. I'm sure my eyes look like stewed tomatoes at this point. Finally, I said thank you and apologize if I made him late for something. He just says, sometimes you're right where you need to be. Mr. Rogers was there for me then, so here's this story on the 50th anniversary of his show for anyone who needs him now. I never saw him again, but that helper quote, that's authentic. That's who he was, for real. When Mr. Rogers died in 2003, I sat at my computer with tears in my eyes, but I wasn't crying over the death of a celebrity. I was mourning the loss of a neighbor. I don't know, I, I read that story this week and my eyes looked like stewed tomatoes. I was a wreck, <laughs> all alone in my living room, like probably looked like an idiot. Um, but I, I just began to think about the way that we live our lives on that horizontal and that vertical, and I began to think, are we living our lives for a resume moment, or are we living our lives for a eulogy moment? If at the end of my life, one story is able to tell us, like one, one person is able to tell a story that is that profound and deep and present, then I think I've done a pretty good job of showing the world who Jesus is. Because when I see that, when I see that kind of attention, that motioning over to the ledge to go sit down. I see Jesus, guys, and that's what makes me emotional. I see the kindness and the presence that is that vertical crashing into the horizontal. I see the horizon and I see someone standing, looking at it, saying, sometimes we're exactly where we need to be. I can pour into you because I know that someone has poured into me, and that's Jesus. So in our political conversations, in our faith conversations, in any conversation that we have, I pray that we would be this attentive and that we would be able to just stop, slow down, and even if the door is open in that elevator and someone looks at you that way, we can have that moment to go like, okay, I'm going to take this time to actually have a meaningful conversation. To embrace that horizon, realizing that the boundaries and the borders that we set up for ourselves are false and the one that we're really chasing, we're always going to be chasing. Because that's where that beautiful collision happens. Let me pray for us and then we're going to go and take communion. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we have examples in our lives uh, of incredible people just living out what you're all about. 
I pray that you would bless our week. I pray that you bless our conversations this week. And I pray that you really just bless the time we have as we get to hang out together after this. Amen.